Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 24. The Apostle Paul, this great missionary leader of the Christian community, church starter all over the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean world, uh, he got himself into some trouble in Jerusalem. And because of the trouble that he found himself in in Jerusalem, they took his case to a city called Caesarea, which was the seat the home, the, the headquarters of the Roman governor there in the Mediterranean world, in, excuse me, in that area of Judea. And, and so now uh, the Roman governor, Felix, is about to have a hearing on the issue that's before him, the guilt, the innocence, the problem of Paul the Apostle. That's where we get into it, Acts chapter 24, starting at verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So where we here we have the Jewish leadership from Jerusalem gathering together at Caesarea to speak to the Roman governor about the problem of Paul. And they brought a man named Tertullus. A skilled lawyer, a mouthpiece, an advocate for their position to come and speak on their behalf. So now the lawyer, Tertullus, is going to begin to speak. Verse 2. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity as being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. And so the lawyer began his uh, oration by laying it on so thick you'd need a shovel to clear it away from what he said in that courtroom before Felix. I mean, look at what he says in verse 3. He calls him most noble Felix. Well, Antonius Felix began his life as a slave. He was very unique among Roman governors. He was the first Roman governor ever to begin life as a slave, but to not only gain his freedom as he was a child, but eventually to be appointed to such high office. And he did it not because he was brilliant. He did it not because he was some marvelous. He did it through skill and intrigue and politicking and all the rest of it that you would expect backroom deals and backstabbing and all the rest of it. He was well known as being an immoral and often brutal man. That's why when Tertullus says in verse 2, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation through your foresight, you you couldn't think of more just flattering lies that a person could say. You see, Felix did not bring peace to Judea. He did not bring prosperity to those he governed. In reality, he was a brutal man who put down several insurrections with tremendous violence. He was a violent unwise, sometimes crazy man, not long before this, in that very city of Caesarea, he ordered the massacre of thousands of Jews and property and whole livelihoods were confiscated and given to wealthy Romans. Everybody knew this. Yet nevertheless, Tertullus begins with this great flattery, with this great oration, telling Tertullus, excuse me, telling Felix how wonderful he is. But now... 
He's going to state his charges beginning at verse 5. Are you ready for this? This is the case against Paul. Here's our courtroom drama for the morning, right? Everybody loves a courtroom drama. You watch them on television all the time. Well, let the movie run in your mind. Here's the accusation that the prosecuting attorney makes against the man on trial, Paul, verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. And those are the accusations he makes against Paul. Number one, in verse 5, he says, We have found this man to be a plague. Now, he's politically dangerous. That's what he's saying. He's a problem. He's a plague. He's a bother to us. And, don't you love that phrase that he uses there in verse 5? A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Each one of those three was meant to demean Paul and who he was. First of all, he calls him a ringleader. Not just a leader, but a ringleader. And by the way, in the original Greek, the word that was used there has the same sort of evil connotations that our word ringleader has in our own ears, right? So first of all, he's a ringleader. Secondly, it's the sect. That dangerous, weird group. The sect. And then what does he call Christianity? Of the Nazarenes. Nazareth was a village held in contempt in the ancient world. So by calling uh, Christianity the sect of the Nazarenes, he's hoping to heap contempt and hatred upon Christianity. And so he's saying this man's a problem. And just like ancient Judea was filled with would-be messiahs and revolutionaries against Rome, Tertullus wanted to put Paul in the same group as these kind of terrors, being a plague, a ringleader, of the Nazarenes. And then he says in verse eight, excuse me, verse six, that he even tried to profane the temple. Now, by the way, can I say that that's really the only specific charge that he makes against him? To call a man a plague isn't really charging him with a crime, is he? To, to say a man is a ringleader of a sect isn't necessarily to charge him with a crime. But if you say he tried to profane the temple, aha, now you're talking about a specific crime that a man could be charged with. Here's the problem. Ladies and gentlemen, look at verses 5 and 6. Does Tertullus offer the slightest bit of evidence for the charge? Not the slightest bit. Well, he, he did this. Well, how do we know he did it? Because I said he did it. That's about the extent of his evidence. Now, before we move on to verse 7, I just want to point out one thing that I think is interesting and that might have brought a smile to the face of Paul as he heard Tertullus. You can sense the tension in the room, right? When your life is on trial and there's a skilled lawyer making accusations against you, you got to be a little bit nervous. But in my vision, as the movie runs in my head, a smile comes upon the face of Paul when he hears this line in verse 5, among all the Jews throughout the world. In other words, Paul says, really? You think I'm that successful? We're getting the message out all over the world. Well, Paul says, well, this is pretty good. I'm glad that even my opposing attorney sees this. But now, verse 7, see where he takes the charge now. Verse 7, he says, But the commander Lysias came and by great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining these things were so. So you can just see the other, yes, yes, this is true, this is true. You know, offering their harumphs and their agreements to to the charges of this skilled lawyer against him. But notice what he says there in verse 8. 
The only thing that he can say in his case against Paul is he tells Felix, by examining himself, examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And do you notice this? Tertullius didn't even pretend to offer evidence of any of the charges. All he said is, well, ask Paul himself, and, and he'll tell you that all these things are true. All he could hope for was that Paul would take the witness stand himself, and he hoped that somehow Paul would incriminate himself, and everybody gave a harumph, yes, we agree, and now the case is going to shift over to Paul. Paul, what do you have to say in your defense? Look at it here at verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Uh, let me just stop right there. Did you notice? Not a word of flattery from Paul towards Felix, right? What does he say? He said, well, you've been a judge a long time. I can give you that. That's all he says. You've been a, na- a judge of this nation for a long time. I cheerfully answer for myself, continuing on, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. That's Paul's whole line right there in verse 13. They cannot prove the things of which they now accuse me. I'm accused of being a plague. Where's the proof? I'm accused of being the ringleader of the supposedly dangerous sect of the Nazarenes. Where's the proof? I'm accused of profaning the temple. Where's the proof? They can't prove anything of which they accuse me. Matter of fact, Paul says, it's only been 12 days since this stuff happened. If people saw me do any of these things, they could easily make it known. Everybody could say, nobody's died since then. If I did it, there should be eyewitnesses. Bring them forth and let them prove it. Paul knew that the truth was on his side. By the way, can I say that that is a wonderful, wonderful place to be in as a believer, to simply know that the truth is on your side. To be not afraid of the truth. To be not afraid of the evidence. To say, go ahead, investigate. Go ahead, search it out. Go ahead, try to examine. Christianity has been examined and criticized and searched through and through, beyond the centuries. It always amuses me how in our modern day and age, people think that, you know, they're going to find the silver bullet that will discredit Christianity. Oh, yeah, no, we're going to find it now. Oh, yeah, we're going to do it. You just wait till the truth comes out about Christianity. Good heavens, people have been trying to do that for 2,000 years. And can I just say, we're still around, thank you very much. You haven't done it yet. And everything that you come up with is just a rehash of what's been done in the past. So go right ahead. We've got nothing to fear from the truth. Let it come forward. And that was Paul's attitude with the specific charges that were being made against him. But now in verse 14, he's going to begin to explain his ministry. And this is wonderful because he's going to say a little bit more about who he is and what he's doing. Look at it. Starting here at verse 14, he says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I 
myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been there before you, been here before you, to object that if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. I love how Paul began that at verse 14. He says, according to the way which they call a sect. You know, it comes us back to this thing that we've seen many times already in the book of Acts. That the early Christian movement was called the way. That's one of the things that they called it. One of the titles by which these followers of Jesus were called in the early days. They called them the way. And I like that because it indicates that Christianity is not merely a belief system. It is a belief system. But it's also a way that you live your life. And they understood that in the early centuries. So he says, according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of my fathers. I haven't abandoned the God of Israel. I haven't turned my back on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, I have not abandoned them or the law and the prophets. I bring it before you. Verse 15, he says, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Now, this was believed by many of the devout Jews of Paul's day, though not by the Sadducees. But Paul's belief that there was a resurrection of the dead connected to his specific trust in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. That was the foundation of everything he believed. That Jesus Christ not only died on a cross paying the penalty for our sins, but that he rose from the dead and that there would be a resurrection, verse 15, both of the just and the unjust. By the way, I don't know if I'm dropping a bomb on you here this morning, but I just need to say it. I'll say it just simply. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That the eternal destiny of men and women is not only heaven. But that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. I would love to have a discussion with anybody who doubts the idea of eternity. I don't think that there are many people here who doubt it. Do you know why? The Bible says that he has placed eternity in our hearts. That by instinct we understand that this world is not all there is. That this world is a preparation for a life to come. And that in that life to come, again, without explaining further, which I easily could, but I'll just leave it at that. The Bible says that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. But back to Paul's point, verse 19, he says plainly, they ought to have been here before you to object. Again, Paul's just saying, there's no eyewitness testimony to prove the charges of the accusers. Paul's saying, I'm in the right. I'm bringing it back to the evidence. That's the very thing that the accusers avoided. What does they say among the legal profession? I should have written this down because maybe I'll get it wrong. 
They say a, a lawyer, he understands that when the, uh, the facts, the evidence is on your side, you argue the facts, the evidence. When the law is on your side, you, you argue the law. When neither one is on your side, you just try to confuse the judge and the jury. Well, Paul didn't have to confuse anybody. The facts and the evidence and the law were all on his side, so he just says, please, prove it. And that's why as Christians, we are never timid about, we're never ashamed of the truth or the evidence. If we are truly following God, then the truth, then the evidence are our friends. They're not our accusers. All right, so... That's basically the trial. The, the, the prosecution presents their case. Paul was able to defend himself. Okay, Felix, what's your decision? What will you decide? Uh, will you look at the things? Well, there's no evidence against this man. Of course I'll set him free. What are you going to do? Look at the response right here in verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, in other words, He understood something about Christianity, right? He understood something about it. Having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty. And he told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or to visit him. See what he says? In verse 22, Felix, the judge, the Roman government, the man in whose hands was the decision for Paul's liberty or freedom, he says, listen, I'll make a decision about you later. I don't have enough evidence before me. I want to speak to the Roman commander. Now, can I just give you my opinion of Felix's decision here? It's a cowardly dodge. There was enough evidence right before him to make a decision. But you know what? He didn't want to make a decision. And so he looked for an excuse. And he goes, well, let's wait and speak to the Roman commander. But you know what? For some reason, two years went by, as we'll see in just a moment, and he never made a decision. Apparently, he never spoke to the Roman commander. So what does he say? He says to Paul, well, you're still in Roman custody, but we'll make it a light custody. We'll put you under house arrest. You'll have liberty. Friends can visit you. Friends can divide. We're not going to throw you into the pit, into the dungeon, but neither are we going to let you go. You're going to be under a gentle house arrest, but you're going to be under our custody because I don't want to make a decision in your case. That's what he says in verse 23. Let him have liberty. You see, Felix tried to walk a middle ground. He knew that Paul was innocent, and so he he, he didn't want to put Paul in the dungeon, so to speak. But at the same time, He did not want to identify himself with Paul's gospel and the Christians. And so what did he do? He said, I'll make no decision and I'll keep Paul in custody. Now, can I just tell you, wouldn't you agree that Felix was being an unfaithful judge here? He had enough evidence right in front of him to make a decision, but he did not make a decision. Now, can I just transfer that principle that there are many people who in their spiritual life They have enough evidence to make a decision about Jesus Christ. But they do not decide. And why don't they decide? Sometimes, I won't say it's true in every case, but sometimes it's for the same reason why Felix didn't make a decision. They lack the courage to make such a decision. They lack the courage to say, I will identify myself with Jesus of Nazareth. I will identify myself with the followers of Jesus Christ. That's what Felix was trying to avoid. That's what many people try to avoid today. Matter of fact, look at it here, verses 24 and 25. It can't get more clear than this. It says, 
And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Okay, so here's Paul. Under house arrest. Again, I want you to have a realistic understanding of Paul's situation. He's not in a dungeon, right? There's not rats crawling over him as he's chained to a wall. That happened in other places where Paul was in prison, but not this one. He's under house arrest. He's not at liberty, but he's not in a terrible place either. So in any way, during this long season, these two years or so that Paul is in prison in Caesarea under Felix's governorship, Felix decides, you know, let's hear from Paul sometime. It's a slow night. You know, there's nothing showing on good at the Roman theater down there. Let's have Paul speak to us. And so he gets together with his wife, Drusilla. Now, did you see that in verse 22? Excuse me, verse 24. Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. It says that he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Paul, speak to us about this faith in Jesus. Speak to us about this man that you follow. We want to hear. Now, what's interesting about this is it says right there, verse 24, with his wife, Drusilla. Did you know that we know something about this Drusilla lady from secular history? Just as much as we know something about Felix. We know that he was a brutal man who began his life as a slave, but ended it just sort of as a corrupt, immoral man. Drusilla was the sister of Herod Agrippa II. Now, that's mentioned in Acts chapter 25. Drusilla, we know from secular history, was beautiful. And she was not yet 20 years old at this time. She's about 18, 19 years old. This beautiful, stunning young woman. Felix seduced her away from her husband, and Felix made her his third wife. So he just added her there. And the lax morality behind this might explain why Paul spoke to him, right? Paul talked to us about faith in Christ. Did you see what Paul spoke to him about in verse 25? Friends, this blows my mind. Here's a three-point sermon from the lips of the Apostle Paul, right? You ready for this? He reasoned with them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. I can't think of three more unpopular subjects for somebody to talk about today, right? You know, they say, if you're going to build a church, if you want to get a following, right, don't talk about those three things, right? And how about this? If you're going to speak before a Roman governor who has his life in your hands, maybe you shouldn't talk to him about those topics. But listen, Paul was fearless, was he not? He said, okay, Felix, you want the truth? I'll give you the truth. Here you go. Let's talk about three things. First, let's talk about righteousness. Now, what would he talk about righteousness with Felix about? Well, I think he would talk very plainly. He would say, listen, Felix, it's so important for man to be made right with God. Felix, you understand this, do you not? That a man must be put in right position to God. And there's only one place to do that. It's for you to have the righteousness of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, applied unto you. And friends, that's the great message of Christianity. The great message of Christianity is simply this. You're not righteous, right? You're not. You understand this. You've sinned. As the Bible says, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You understand that, right? Now, you may phrase it in other ways, right? You phrase it something like this. Um, Well, nobody's perfect. 
Well, okay, however you want to phrase it, whatever, but you've sinned and you've fallen short of the glory of God. But did you know that there was a perfect man who walked this earth? That Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of God in every way possible. That he never broke the law of God and he fulfilled it perfectly in the way that he lived. He was a perfectly righteous man. He lived a righteous life, but not only that, he died a righteous death. And when he died on the cross, it was out an utter act of love to bear upon him all the guilt, all the shame, all the penalty that our sin deserved. It was placed upon him at the cross, was it not? And now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, there's the great exchange. Jesus bore our unrighteousness, and we gain his righteousness. Isn't that a great exchange? He takes your sin, and you get his righteousness. Felix, let me speak to you about righteousness. I can just imagine Paul developing that theme. And then, and then what do you do? You talk about self-control. As he looks at Felix, this man who was famous for his immorality, this man who has his 19-year-old trophy wife right by his side, right? What does he say? He says, Felix, I have a feeling we should talk about self-control. Boy, I bet that went over well, didn't it? You can just imagine the looks on Felix's face and Drusilla's face, sort of that attitude saying, I can't believe he's talking to me this honestly. But at the same time, Felix and Drusilla both knowing he's telling the truth. Please notice, friends, there was none of this off with his head kind of thing, right? That kings often say to prophets who speak to them. But no, Paul spoke in such a way, with such power and such an appeal to truth that he knew. That there is a right way to live, a life filled of self-control. And Felix, the very way that you live your life shows that you have no satisfaction in your life. Your life is empty. If your life was filled, if your life was at peace, why would you keep seeking after these things that you desperately try to fill into that empty void of your life? Felix, why do you get drunk every night if it wasn't to try to fill this void? Felix, why, why do you just make your way through a succession of women and relationships if your life was really at peace? And I can imagine Paul looking in the eyes of poor Drusilla, this 19-year-old girl, and thinking, sweetheart, you're his current flame, but you're probably not going to be the last one, right? You're probably just one in a line of succession. He'll get tired of you too. You see, your problem is you have no self-control. And self-control is evident because you're just trying to stuff everything into an unfulfilled life. Felix, you need Jesus to fulfill your life. And think, wow, speaking about righteousness, that's pretty heavy, right? Speaking about self-control, that's another thing. And then Paul drops the bomb on them with point number three. Did you see that? And, you know, Felix, I just thought for the third point, let's talk about the judgment to come. People don't want to think about that, right? Uh, I just have to tell you... I, how can I leave this text without speaking to you very honestly about the judgment to come? Ladies and gentlemen, every one of us will have to stand before God and give an account to him. I've read people who imagine what that day will be like. They imagine, and it's almost hard for me to believe that they imagine this, but it's true. They imagine that they will stand before God on that day and call him into account. Now, God, yeah, where, where were you when, you know, this tragedy happened in my life? 
Yeah, well, what about the job? Yeah, God, how, how come it wasn't always easy and good for me? How come other people had more than I did? How come you on and on and on? They actually imagine that they will stand on that day and that they will lay accusations against God. My, my, my dear misguided friend, it is utterly serious that there is a day when you will have to stand before God and give an account. And if you have to point back to anything in you or in your life, you're toast. You can't stand before God on that basis. But on that day when you stand before God, if you can say that in both life and in the age to come, you point to Jesus Christ and you say, He is my righteousness. He bore the judgment that I deserve. Yes, Father, I know that I deserve the judgment, but that judgment was placed upon the Son for me, and I put my trust in Him. And the Father will say, You have recognized my Son. I receive you. Now, for such a great message, and don't you wish you could have heard those messages from Paul? Oh, I I would give a lot of money to hear some of those messages from Paul. I, I have some satisfaction that in heaven we'll be able to watch Paul's preaching to Felix, right? Listen, it would be a precious thing, but please, what was Felix's response? Look at it here in verse 25, where it says, excuse me, verse, yeah, 25. Felix was afraid. That was his first reaction. Fear. First, it says he was afraid. Then look secondly what it says in verse 25. He said to Paul, go away for now, for when I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Here's the situation as I read it. I hope I'm not in error on this, but this is how I read it. Felix, I know you're right, Paul. I know you are. I hear you speak. And even though I can't articulate as being the Spirit of God, something stirs inside of me and tells me that it's right. I know it's right. But I just don't have the courage to make a decision. So let's wait for later. Go away. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. And many people respond to the gospel in that very way. They express their rejection through delay. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. And tomorrow, tomorrow, yes, I'll get my life right with God. Yes, I'll put my trust in the Son. Yes, I'll repent and believe. But I won't do it today. I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow. Friends, your rejection through delay, at the end of the day, it's just rejection. The Bible tells us to come to Jesus in repentance and faith today. It says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's foolish to trust in a convenient time to repent and believe. You're never going to have a time that's more convenient than today. Never. You you, you think it'll be easier to surrender your life to Jesus Christ tomorrow? Or a week? Or a month from now? Today. Today while the Spirit of God is tugging on your heart. Today while you're thinking, you know, this makes sense, but can I really do it? Yes, today you can do it. You could say this, that the claims of Jesus are never convenient for us. If you insist on waiting for a convenient time, you're going to wait for an eternity. And an eternity that's spent in agonizing separation from God. 
Now, I, I wish I could just say that Felix's problem was that he didn't have the courage, but it's worse than that. Look at verse 26. We'll finish the chapter here. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Did you see that in verse 26? He hoped that money would be given him by Paul. You see, though Felix met often with Paul, it wasn't an honest seeking. He hoped to be paid off with a bribe. And sometimes people who put forth a supposedly noble reason for rejecting Jesus or for delaying a decision with him, actually the reason isn't so noble after all. And so Paul stayed in this Roman custody under Felix for more than two years until another man succeeded Felix, a man named Festus. And we'll talk about that. Sometimes I think that men like Felix and Pilate are the guiltiest of all those who reject Jesus Christ. They know what is right, but they refuse to do it purely out of the fear of man. I can just imagine, there's probably probably someone here today. You know you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, but what has kept you back is the fear of man. What? will others think? Can I call you back to a more important question? What does God think? And God invites you to him today, right now, with open arms. Let's pray, and pray especially about this issue of the fear of man. Father in heaven, I pray right now, Lord, for those who have delayed a decision for Jesus. They've put it off because of a fear of man because they, they fancied in their mind there might come a more convenient time. Lord, I pray that you'd impress upon their hearts right now that now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. So Jesus, now as we just close in prayer, I pray that you just move upon hearts right now to receive you, to trust in you. Please, I ask that people all over this room just be in prayer to God and be seeking him. But as people are reverently praying right now, I just simply want to make a very direct appeal and say, if today is the day you need to put away your fear of man and put your faith in Jesus Christ, in who he is and what he did for you on the cross, if you understand that today is your day to repent and believe, then tell God so right now. Just say it. Say it in a whispered voice before God. Jesus, I want to repent. I want to believe in you right now. I'm not going to let the the, the fear of man dictate my life any longer. Jesus, I'm going to let you dictate my life. Tell Jesus that right now. Even if you say it in a whisper, say it before him. I believe upon you, Jesus. Tell Jesus that you believe in who he is and what he did for you on the cross. If you said that to Jesus right now, I want to lead you in a prayer. Jesus, receive my life. Right now I repent. Right now I believe. Give me new life.
and fill me, Lord. I, I don't want to be empty anymore. I no longer delay. I no longer wait for a convenient time. But today's the day, Lord. Receive my life. And friends, if you've prayed that prayer, can I just ask you to, to raise your hand? I want you to do that to be an God bless you, sir. To be an encouragement to eat. Bless you over there. To many here this morning. Others here this morning. We, we just want to recognize. We want to pray for you. We'll give you a Bible if we can. Anybody else here this morning? I want you to understand it's not the raising of the hand that, that does this for your life. What it is, it's the faith you put in who Jesus is and what he did for you. But please, anybody else here this morning? God bless you over here on my right. Bless you. Anybody else? Bless you over here. God bless you, sir. Others say, bless you back there, way at the back of the room. Thank you, Lord, that many have trusted. Anybody else here this morning? Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Father, I pray that you would give to these who have put their trust in you, to those who have raised their hands and more in this room, Lord. I pray that you'd give them the courage to walk a life that fears you more than it fears man. Do it in our life, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.